Welcome to our second season of In a Mother's Mind, our co-produced podcast series from Pause. It aims to raise awareness about the experiences and needs of women who have had children removed from their care. It was created by a group of four women who have experience of having children removed from their care, who all have completed the Pause program. I'm Helena. I'm a graduate of the Pause program, and I will be your host for the series. When going through care proceedings, your safe space, your home, is disturbed. In this episode, we will be discussing some of the practical and emotional challenges that women face around housing when going through care proceedings and after having a child removed from their care. We are going to talk to Polly Neat, CEO of Shelter, and Angela Fraser-Wicks, who is the Chair of the Board of Trustees for Family Rights Group and who has personal experience of the care system. First, let's hear from Polly, who is being interviewed by myself. Hi, my name's Polly Neat and I'm the Chief Executive of Shelter, the homelessness and housing charity. Can you tell us a bit about yourself and your expertise? So I've been at Shelter about six years now. I've learned a lot about the challenges that people face with their housing and also what needs to be done about it. And before my job at Shelter, I was chief executive of Women's Aid. That's a national domestic abuse charity. One of the things that I was focused on was to make coercive and controlling behaviour a criminal offence. We successfully campaigned on that. And we also campaigned very hard to get better treatment for domestic abuse survivors in the family courts. So what is your experience of working with women who are going through care proceedings or who had children removed from their care? I guess the first thing I would say about that is that it's very unusual to meet a woman who's gone through the experience of having children removed who doesn't feel desperately let down by multiple agencies that have been involved over a significant period of time. I think my other observation would be that these are women who are at very high risk of homelessness. And they're also a group of women who are very likely to have experienced domestic abuse and also childhood trauma, but that's going to be compounded by the traumatic experience of court proceedings And also, if you're made homeless and you have to be in temporary accommodation or even sleeping rough for a time, that is deeply traumatic in itself. So we're talking basically about a desperate need for trauma-informed and coherent support. And we're talking about a group of women who, in my experience, very rarely, if ever, get that type of support. I know many women and myself that can 100% relate to all of that. The trauma is then done to you and then you are just dropped and left to try and deal with that trauma all on your own with exactly very little services that understand what that trauma does to you, never mind how they can move forward and rebuild afterwards. That's right. And I think when you look at housing and homelessness services, and I'm talking particularly about local authorities, It's in the interests of that service to challenge women who say that they are homeless as a result of domestic abuse, to 
find reasons to mistrust a woman or to stigmatize her, which having had children removed, unfortunately, might be one of those. And so you're looking at a culture that is about rationing rather than being about understanding what support is needed and providing that. Are there any specific housing and financial challenges that you are aware of that women going through care proceedings face? Definitely. The fundamental issue is every single year, we're actually going backwards in delivery of new social housing, which means that people who desperately need a home to rent that they can afford just can't find anything. The main financial challenge is just the sheer unaffordability of housing. And then, of course, local housing allowance and housing benefit being frozen. Those benefits which are designed to meet the gap between incomes and rents are simply not doing that. But there's another issue as well, which is that we're talking about a group of women who are very likely to have experienced domestic abuse. So on top of the fact that housing is unaffordable, you'll often find women who haven't had proper access to their own money. And that causes additional challenges. Yeah, I agree 100% with you. When I lost care of my children, a lot of my benefits were stopped instantly and it was overnight and I went from being stable financially to being in the red month after month after month. I became very close to losing my home Mm. because of this massive financial change. And it's not really an awful lot of help out there to go, right, this is what you can do. This is the help you can get. Yeah. It's just like an extra punishment on top of the trauma that you've already got. That's a really important point. And that's when things like the bedroom tax are going to kick in. So if you're living in a property where you have had children in the property, then your benefits might reduce. And that is really problematic for women in this situation. Many women do try and stay in the same home that they've lost Mm. their children in, so are hit badly with the bedroom tax. And the other issue is when you're going through care proceedings, trying to get the children home again, You need to have the bedroom, you need to have that space. But if you're getting hit by bedroom tax and all the other issues financially at that time, they're in a rock and a hard place. It's like they have to keep the house, but they can't afford the house. If they move house and downsize, they then lose the opportunity to get the children home. I think this is the way in which the system puts this group of women in a catch-22 all the time. This is only one example of that. I've seen examples of where women and their children have been made homeless and they've been separated because the local authority will say that it has a duty to accommodate the children but not the woman. What do you do in that situation? Shelter is here. We will give advice. If there's anything we can find in a woman's situation that we can build on to make homelessness less likely, we will do it. But I have to say, actually what needs to happen is the system needs to change welfare policies need to change because everything you're saying is true. There are some real traps there that the system is setting for this group of women that are very, very difficult to avoid. What support do you believe is available to women that could help prevent long-lasting financial difficulties? Can you give us any examples of good practices from services that they could maybe do to help these women? Debt advice is really, really important. At Shelter, we employ quite a lot of debt advisors. They can help you to understand what you really have to pay 
and what you can negotiate. And sometimes the people that are shouting the loudest aren't the people that you should prioritise. Trying to find access to specific women's services is really important. So if there is a women's service in your area, I would really recommend accessing that because it's much more likely to be trauma-informed. And if you're in a, a very traumatic situation, it is quite difficult to organise your thoughts and a properly trauma-informed service should be able to help you to do that. I guess those would be the two main things, really. We did a piece of research led by women who'd experienced homelessness, and you won't be surprised to hear that a very large number of them had experienced domestic abuse and some had children removed. And the biggest thing that came out of that research was the need for proper trauma-informed services right across the board and for an understanding of trauma to just be available to a much wider range of professionals than it currently is. Yeah, I'd agree. And especially with all the awareness of mental health difficulties, housing difficulties, you would Mm -hmm. think by now that that would just be commonplace with a lot of practices. As a society now, we're talking about mental health and well-being a lot, but... I still think the culture of misogyny and blaming women for what's happened to them is still a stronger driver in services behaviour than that understanding. We're very good at worrying about people's well-being as long as they're not people that we're blaming. That is a, a really massive cultural problem that we've got that really has to be addressed, yeah. Do you think there are gaps anywhere else that need to be addressed? I think homelessness services in general have traditionally been quite geared towards men and men's needs. So if you think about hostels, for example, quite often they're not really a safe place for women. There's been great work done. We've done work. Some Mungos have done some fantastic work. Homeless Link have done great work to try to make homelessness services more trauma-informed and better understanding of women when they experience homelessness. But I think there is still a gap there and there's still quite a way to go to make those services properly serving women. I suppose the biggest gap for me is at the policy level. We have got to get policymakers in government to understand that the mistakes that are being made by services and the gaps that women are falling through, the consequences of that are incredibly costly. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much. You've gave such good advice and amazing insights. Now we're going to hear from Angela, who was being interviewed by Vanessa. Angela is going to be talking about personal lived experience, so please take care when listening, or feel free to turn it off as it could be triggering. Hi, I'm Vanessa, postgraduate, and today I am interviewing Angela. Angela, do you want to tell us a bit about yourself? I'm Angela Fraserwicks. I'm a birth mum. I lost my children to adoption back in 2004 after quite a long battle with my local authority for help and support and some of that relates to housing. I was a single mum and everything ticked along quite nicely for a while but unfortunately 
I then got into a relationship with a man I thought was Mr. Right. I had a very abusive childhood, so did he. I'd struggled with alcohol and drug addiction in the past, so had he. And I thought he was my kindred spirit. He then said that he'd lost his home and needed somewhere to stay temporarily. He was on the waiting list for a council property, but as a single man, he wasn't priority. So he moved in with me and my son, and that's when things really started to go downhill. You don't notice it at the beginning. It's quite subtle. Every time I got to the point where he'd push me too far and his behaviour was overstepping, I'd say, I need you to leave. And he'd then turn on the tears. And having been homeless myself several times prior to this, he knew that was going to get me. Everything came crashing down around me when I was served an eviction notice. And what I didn't realise is he'd been stealing the rent money and I then discovered that he'd also stolen the house deposit that I'd begun saving. I ended up losing my job because I didn't have any money to pay for nursery and without nursery I couldn't work. And that's when he said, if I put you and your son on the application for the council house, it'll bump us up the list and we'll be able to get a house in my name. I realised that that was really my only option. And that's how myself and my son ended up in the terrible house in a really rough area. At the time, I was really struggling with my mental health, desperate for help, and went back to the local authority. And my son was given a social worker. It became very much judgment, labelling, constant criticism. And my partner, his controlling behaviour was now off the charts. I was trapped. I had nowhere else to go and I had a complete breakdown and ended up in hospital then when I was in hospital I was convinced to put my son into what I now know was section 20 foster care but then unfortunately when I was discharged I was just simply told he can't come home until and then the list of things I needed to do started I was devastated I'd never spent any time away from my son until this point and he was three and a half my home was filled with his belongings. His bedroom was there. His toys were there. And I kept saying, you know, he needs this. And I kept saying, oh, he has everything he needs at the foster carer's house. My voice as a mum, my ability to advocate for my child had just disappeared. I then discovered I was pregnant with my second child. My partner was adamant that he didn't want this child and that I should have a termination. And I just said, no, this is my decision. So he walked out. I managed to access drug and alcohol treatment because I was pregnant. I got completely clean. I did loads of work on the house and made it all look lovely. And the local authority eventually said that my child could come home. Four weeks before the birth of my second child, my partner came back. And he then played the trump card, which was, it's my house. If you don't let me come home, I'm going to relinquish the tenancy. And your son's not going to come home and they're not going to let you keep your baby, knowing full well that that would have made me homeless while I still had social work involvement. So I gave in to the pressure and let him come back. It's always the victims who have to up and leave while the perpetrator just gets to live a cushy little life. My second son was born and I was terrified because I'd had such severe complications with my first son that it was very likely that something could go wrong with the labour of my second son. But unfortunately... All anybody saw on my notes was that I had local authority involved. They didn't see me as a vulnerable pregnant woman. 
Well, I went into labour. I had really serious complications. And my partner turned up and was, you need to come home. I'm not looking after your son. I had to discharge myself. And everything was then my responsibility. I started to become incredibly unwell. And I then hemorrhaged and was rushed into hospital going into septic shock. Again, I had to discharge myself because my partner was saying, I'm going to put the kids in care and I'm going to give up the house. And unfortunately for me, my partner then attacked me quite violently. Up until that point, he'd never been physically violent. It was always coercion. That's why I'd struggled to identify what he was doing as abusive. I got a restraining order. I went to the police. They wouldn't help because it was his house. The non-molestation order had a power of arrest. He wasn't allowed within 50 metres of me, yet I legally couldn't stop him entering the property. He would let himself in in the middle of the night. So he had this complete control. And in the end, I went into the local authority and sobbing, just saying, please, you have to get us out of there. I cannot stop him coming in the house. It's his house. I went home thinking hopefully someone's going to be in contact. The following day, the social workers turned up with police and picked up my baby and walked out and they took my son from nursery. You have personal experience of care proceedings and the care system. How was housing played a part in your story? Housing was probably the thing that screwed me over in the end. What if somebody, when I'd said to them, please get me out of here, had actually got me out of there. And all this while, I'm still in this horrible house, being controlled by this horrible man. And in the end, he convinced me that the best thing for everybody would be if I committed suicide. So I attempted suicide. Somebody at the hospital had managed to contact a refuge. So I was discharged. I had to go back to the house for one night. We couldn't get me into the refuge till the next day. And when I got home, everything had gone all of my possessions, all of my children's possessions. What is the impact on women's mental health when a woman has to flee her home, community and support network? Before we did this podcast, I was sitting and I was thinking, I'm nearly 50. There must have been a time in your life where you felt safe and secure. And I realised that I've never had somewhere that I can call home until the house we're living in now. I mean, our last home, we thought we were secure and the landlords decided that they wanted to move back in. My husband, he'd just been emptying wardrobes and clothes and my daughter's toys and was putting them in bin bags. And I completely broke down. That had triggered something in me, seeing my possessions, seeing my child's possessions in bin bags, reminded me of every time previously where things had just come crashing down on me. Your home is supposed to be the place where you're safe. And I realised in 30 years, I've had almost 30 different addresses. The impact on my mental health is probably going to be permanent. I will always live in fear of losing my home because it's happened to me too many times. Do you have any advice for other women in similar situations? Get help. We have a family rights group. I'm chair of trustees. We have a free independent legal advice line. If your counsel won't help, just keep hounding them. Try and get them to listen. If it's domestic abuse that's meaning that you're going to lose your home, find domestic abuse charities, get them to help. Don't just assume 
that the one person that tells you there is no help available is right. There is light at the end of the tunnel. You can find that stability and that security in a home. Speak to other people who've been through the same and gather as much evidence as possible as well. If I'd have asked for the decisions in writing so that I actually had some sort of proof that this wasn't me making a decision, because I think this thing where we say people have intentionally made themselves homeless, that then causes you so many issues when actually, if you're living with domestic abuse, what choice do you have that cannot be put under the category of intentionally making yourself homeless? Thank you, Angela, for taking the time out as a big interview for this podcast. Thank you so much for having me and hopefully everybody listening will understand that this is a very complex situation, but sometimes very simple and easy steps could have made and should have made a huge difference. Thank you so much to Polly and Angela for joining us for this episode and sharing their thoughts. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Our aim is to shine a spotlight on the hidden housing needs of women going through care proceedings and those fleeing domestic abuse. We also want to send a message of support to other women that are in our situation so that they know they are not alone. We want to encourage them to seek support and make their voices heard. We'll be back soon with another podcast episode, but in the meantime, if you want to find out more about PAUSE, just go to www.pause.org.uk or find us on Twitter or Instagram at pause.org. Until next time, thank you.